Welcome to Anything But Traditional. I'm your host, Tamar Ben-Svi. Today, we have a super special episode featuring Suri Khaylan, Suri soldiers in the Israeli Defense Forces, Tom Eisenman, Arya Schlesinger, and Sam Cohen. Tom is a husband of Nahama, who you heard from yesterday in the episode featuring the wives of those in Milan. And Aryav and Sam go way back with my husband, back to kindergarten. I thank Tom, Aryav, and Sam for giving their time, for sharing what it means to be part of the Israeli army in the darkest of days. Here, from Tom Eisenman, again, Nahama Eisenman's husband, three beautiful girls who he adores, how he was called up on Simchat Torah, yet feels proud of the opportunity to be part of this wonderful nation and is doing everything in his power to be there for his family, to care for his family, both his family at home, and the nation of Israel. Thank you, Tom, for what you do. Hey, how are you? Okay. I was called up in the middle of Simchas Torah davening. Um, what did I feel? Um, I felt a great honor and a great Jewish pride that that's this is what we need to do and this is what we're going to do. Um yeah, that's uh, honestly that was a real feeling. Like this is this is it, Baruch Hashem. You know, the last Holocaust we had, we didn't have soldiers. Baruch Hashem, this soldier, this Holocaust, we have soldiers to fight it. Number two, have you? How have you been holding up the front lines, Baruch Hashem, I've been completely fine in the front lines. Um, took a few days. There's a lot of amazing people in the in the Jewish world and send us so much food and love and things like that. Um, that's for that. Three. What has been the hardest part of it all is being away from my family, 100% the hardest part of it all. Well, for me to be on base, and especially for the last few weeks, a lot of it's been waiting. I've been having so many missions. Now it looks like that's going to be changing. But while you're waiting, it's okay. We can be bored, but knowing that my wife and kids are home alone, that's the hardest. What is one message that you'd like to share with the world right now? I would like to share one message with the entire world to realize this is not a real estate dispute and there is evil in the world and there always has been evil. And the Torah talks about a malik and there's a mitzvah to kill a malik. And a malik is a concept, I believe, not a paisik, but I believe malik is a concept of people who just kill us for no reason. And in the 1930s, it was the Germans, the Nazis, and we had a mitzvah to kill every single Nazi. Clearly today, doesn't you know? I think any three-year-old understands that a malik is Hamas, we need to try not to make peace with them. We need to wipe them out, and that is an mitzvah. You can't live with the enemy uh, and anything like that. And I also think all Jews in America should have real Jew pride. It's not Israel pride, it's Jew pride. They didn't kill us because we're in Israel. Stop with that narrative. That's what America wants you to believe, is that there's some you know real estate dispute. Nobody chops, stomps on a baby's head because of a real estate dispute. This is classic, age-old anti-Semitism. Torah talks about it. We know it from history. This next story is of Sam Cohen, one of my husband's closest friends from Melvin J. Berman Hebrew Academy, 
in Rockville, Maryland. Sam Cohen is an officer in the Home Front Command in the civilian sector. Hear his story of how he was in Maryland and didn't want to believe the atrocities until I had to face him when he had to come back from Maryland and leave his wife and daughter behind. Sam lives in Israel, but he was in America for the Chagim. Thank you, Sam, for doing what you do, for returning for your country, and for fighting for your country. Hi, Tamara. Thank you for reaching out and um, letting me share my story a little bit. Um, I was called up on the 7th, on Shabbat, the first day. Um, however, I was in America. My wife, daughter, and I were in the United States uh, visiting family. And on Shabbat, we were in Silver Spring with my parents. We woke up and uh, started hearing, you know, that there were a lot of rockets overnight and that it's a lot more than usual and, and that something weird was going on. But we didn't really have much information. Um, as I was leaving for Shoal, my older brother um, actually called me and I realized right away that something was going on. I knew he would never call me unless something was was wrong. And he said, like, have you been following what's going on in Israel? And, and I said, like, you know, I, I realize that something's going on. I haven't seen the news yet. And he said, it's bad. Go, go look. And, um, and uh, I think I was still a little bit in shock. You know, I, I, I walked to Shul and I, all around me, people were whispering about it. And there was a somber, uh, ad, you know, attitude. And all of a sudden, the rabbi gets up, and I see that he's teary-eyed, and he's saying to Hillim and and uh, and um, crying and saying, start saying a prayer for the soldiers and for the state of Israel. And I was like, I something's like this is crazy. Like I need to figure out what's going on. You know, my unit usually gets gets called up first, so I I ran home, turned on my phone, called my commander, um, and he said, it's really bad. Um, you know, if you're in the U.S., like, we're going to be here for a while, come back as soon as you can, um, we'll, but we're all here. And um, so right away I called the airline, started trying to get a flight, um, and I was scared, you know, and then I only first started checking the news and seeing what was actually going on, and, and I was scared and horrified and and worried, and, you know, but I also, at the same time, I was I knew exactly what I needed to do. I knew that I needed to go home. I knew that I needed to be there with my unit. I knew that this is what we trained for and um, and that I just had to get back as soon as I could, you know? Um, so that was uh, that was where, where it all caught me. Um, so I'm actually not serving on the front lines. Uh, I'm an officer in the Home Front Command, which is the part of the army that's uh, um, responsible for the civilian sector. Uh, so we do everything relating to um, the sirens and bomb shelters, but we also deal with uh, the regulations for what schools can be open and when and how and what businesses, who can go to work, who can't go to work, who has to go to work, what factories have to be running. We make sure that the municipalities continue to give uh, uh, citizens the, um, the services that they need. We work with government agencies, you know, um, Ministry of Health um, and all the other social uh, um, 
service agencies, making sure that they're giving civilians um, the 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 response and the and the attention that they need. Um, so we're working, doing all of that, working uh, with the hotels for the people who uh, who can't go home, um, and so holding up, you know, just knowing that we're we're um, helping out and keeping the civilian sector running and helping re reinforce people's confidence and faith in the army and uh, um, taking care of the families back home so that our soldiers can do what they need to do is give, has been giving me uh, the strength to keep going. I think for me personally, the hardest part is uh, um, not knowing <laughs> what's going to happen. Uh, you know, my wife and daughter are still uh, um, uh, in the U.S. I almost said on vacation, but it's not a vacation. It's like a twilight zone. You know, my wife and daughter, thank God, are with uh, their with her family in New York, and they were with my family for a few days when the war broke out. But not not being there with them, not having them by my side, has been really hard. Um, you know, I'm lucky to be able to FaceTime them and see them and talk to them. You know, sometimes even multiple times a day. Um, but but it's uh, it's hard and it's bittersweet. You know, uh, seeing my amazing wife take care of my daughter and my amazing daughter. Uh, you know, growing up so quickly, and it's only been a month, but I feel like it's been a lifetime, and seeing her uh, grow and not being able to be there with them is really hard for me. Um, so that's definitely uh, what's been hardest for me on the personal. I think the har another hard part for me is, is something that's always been hard. You know, I always had a dream to go to combat and to, to protect the Jewish people, and, um, and uh, over as I've gotten older, I've taken on more and more responsibility in my unit and uh, um, as an officer. But to see uh, people being able to protect themselves, their family, our families, our homeland, um, uh, and not be able to take part in that um, uh, really, really um, always is a little bit difficult for me. But I also know that I'm doing what, what I need to do. The message that I want to share is that we're strong, Israel is strong, uh, the Jewish people are strong. Um, we're going to do what we need to do to win, to to save our citizens, to return our hostages, to protect uh, everyone uh, back home. Um, we appreciate all the support that we're seeing from around the world. Um, people posting and putting themselves out there supporting us it means the world to us um but at the end of the day we're going to do what we need to do um you know whatever governments support us um that's great but at the end of the day we have a responsibility to our citizens to our hostages to our families our wives our children and our soldiers on the front line um we're gonna do what we need to do we're gonna destroy our enemies but we're also gonna always be looking to the future um, to, for, for a peace that we do believe is going to come. And unfortunately, sometimes our enemies force our hand and we have to destroy them in order to create a reality that will allow us to have peace, um, not just for ourselves and for our children and for our for future generations, but for our enemies. Um, they don't have to be our enemies. They're people who don't support Hamas. Hamas is not a democracy. They don't have the interests of their people in mind. And we're going to do what we can to allow more moderate, uh, um, hopeful, uh, peace-loving uh, people to build a life um, alongside us here. Um, the first few days I was kind of sleeping on base, um, but I've actually been staying with friends, um, friends and family, uh, 
since I've been back, I have actually not been home. Um, my wife and I uh, just moved, kind of moved into our new apartment. We got the key to our new apartment before Rosh Hashanah, and we uh, just moved all of our stuff into the new apartment before we flew for vacation. So we haven't even lived in the apartment yet, and we have a family from Ashkelon who does not have a bomb shelter in their house who's been staying in our apartment. Um, you know, another thing that we can do as part of the war effort, opening up our home. I've been staying close to base um, in Jerusalem with friends and family. And of course, seeing all the generosity has been um, heartwarming and, and inspiring. People bringing me into their home who I didn't know, sharing um, a bed, food, their car, whatever I needed to be able to focus on uh, on uh, my reserve duty. And then friends, um, you know, some who are newer friends, like I said, and some who are very old friends uh, um, who are like family at this point. Um, everyone's been looking out for everyone to allow us all to do what we need to do. The last interview is for Ariane Schlesinger. My husband's best friend since kindergarten. My husband's best man at our wedding. Ario Schlesinger is a commander and teacher for soldiers to deal properly with bodies from war. This one is super intense and it comes with a big trigger warning. Yet, when you listen to his story, you see the beauty of Amisao. You see the beauty of Judaism and what makes a Jewish nation different. Each and everybody, each and every person is an individual. Each and every person is treated as an individual, no matter where they are or what condition they're in. Commander Ariel Schlesinger in this story shares how even in the darkest times, this is shown. He tells his background of what he usually does in the army, what he currently is doing, and how he's managing. Thank you, Ario Schlesinger, for coming on. Thank you for what you do. My name is Ariav Schlesinger. My job in the Army Reserves is to be a commander and teacher of groups of soldiers who are learning how to gather, deal with, um, identify, and transport bodies from war or other um, catastrophes resulting in one or many corpses left behind. I have been in this job for pretty much since since I left the army seven years ago or so. Um, and I was in the, the Rabbanut in the army. Um, I was an officer in the Rabbanut, not in charge of anything that has to do with this, but since this is also part of the Rabbanut's jurisdiction, I was given this job without any background and I was told I'm never going to have to do anything like this myself. Or in other words, things would have to be really, really bad to ever get to the place where I'm being called to do something like this. 
because there are tons of people who it is their job to do that in the army and in practicality with a lot of different situations zaka is the one who does who deals with it anyway so pretty much would have to be really bad to go all the way down the chain of command where someone whose job doesn't have any experience and whose job is really just to teach the stuff whatever be called to do that so that's basically what my job is so since the start of the war or since that since Simchat Torah I was wondering if there was a place for me in reserves if there's something that I can do to help seeing as my job is teaching um, maybe we need to be training people for other possible events and then eventually a few days in I was told that um, they were trying to get permission for me and for my fellow officers in this part of the army, which is called Anoch, which is Isuf Nitunim V'chalalim, gathering, um, I guess, uh, information or data or anything relevant from the field and corpses. Um, that relevant information refers to items or anything anything that's on them or nearby them that might help with identifying the body and eventually we were told that there is a job for us to do it's not completely clear what it's going to be um but we are our teaching and our courses are needed somewhere so i show up and there's a lot of uncertainty as to what exactly I'm supposed to be doing. I go to one place, they send me to another place. I end up in Shura, which was something I'd never heard of. And I show up and I get there and I see the normal things set up. The, the stretchers, the, um, the carts... The all the different normal things we use for identifying the dummies or cadavers that we use to practice them underneath or inside certain bags. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, you know, really intense drill. All the while, I'm wondering why there's such an awful smell. And then eventually it dawned on me that there were no dummies or cadavers and that this was the real deal and that essentially all of the bodies of the victims of the horrible terror attacks that happened on Simchat Torah were being brought here to this base that I was present at at the moment. That was a lot to take in. It was... I mean, in, in my training, the closest I ever came to a real body was just witnessing a tara of just a normal elderly person who had passed away. And I'd never imagined I, I would be witnessing victims of brutal terrorist attacks, some of which that had been out for a while. And I won't get into details about the state that a lot of these bodies were in, but it was definitely an experience and it is 
something that has moved me in many different ways. And I have a lot of thoughts about it. Some of which I've been thinking about a lot. Some of which I'm only beginning to understand. And thank God I have a lot of friends and family to support me. And there's really no way I can look at the situation of me being at all a victim with the things that I was seeing and things that I was dealing with. I'm just thankful that I'm okay and that my family's okay. And really, you know, dealing with feelings of guilt as well, that everything is so okay considering what I've witnessed. So... That was the first day, and I returned to that base a few more times. It turns out I was essentially sent there because there wasn't really much else for me specifically to do in teaching yet, but there were just countless of... There was crates and crates and crates, refrigerated crates of bodies that were being sent to this place, and it was an overwhelming amount of work. There was... 24-7 work identifying and and transporting and and carrying these bodies that they needed help and they were going to take any help that they could get um, assuming it was someone who is trained and knows what they're doing in the field in the army and so I felt it a privilege and a duty to be able to help pay a last respect to the victims of these acts. I... So I have a lot of thoughts that have gone through my head many times. Um, and I'll share, I'll share a few of them. One of the first thoughts that I had was a strange thought that I wouldn't really ever expect to associate with this experience because I never thought that I would be able to use the word beautiful to describe what I was seeing and dealing with hundreds and hundreds of corpses in bags, carrying them and placing them, opening some in order to help identifying them. But what was beautiful was just seeing how embedded in to the protocol of the army to the very nature of our army religion is when it matters most and particularly the concept of kvodamet it was fascinating to see how the at least on the base that i witnessed a few days later when a little bit of the of the hectic nature of obviously I was not there gathering the actual bodies from the field but from what I witnessed the fact that the Rabbanut is in charge of this and all the people involved in dealing with these bodies are people who are Yeresh who understand the halachot of Kvod and everything that needs to be done and the amount of care given to each body 
is just something that I wouldn't have possibly imagined is possible when dealing with an overwhelming amount of bodies. And as sad as it is to think about all of the loved ones who are waiting far too long to be able to bring their fallen loved ones to a place of final resting and have a little bit of comfort. You know, the halakha tells us that we need to bury them as soon as possible. But we also need to deal with them with care and identify them all. And just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have imagined that it was possible to have so much care when dealing with all this. When I first got there and I saw just crates and crates with shelves of bodies, I wouldn't, I mean, there's things to do. These bodies are essentially, what are they? They're luggage. They're, they're not human beings who can feel or think anymore. They're, they need to be transported from point A to point B. So they're luggage and it needs to be done fast. And so what are the ways that we can transport it in the quickest and most efficient ways? Um, <clears throat> that's, that's really the practical thing that needs to be done. So I would imagine, you know, you would pick up a body, you would throw it over your shoulder, you know, you would, God forbid, even have to toss bodies into piles. Absolutely none of that. Each body was treated by such care, four different people carrying the body on the stretcher. Everyone knows all the rules. The body needs to constantly be laying in a respectful position on its back, face up, head in a certain position and head on one side, feet on the other, all the bodies following that same, um, that same position, not thrown together. If there are, you know, if there are appropriate places to put them in an orderly fashion, great. If not, then they're lined up on the floor, all in, in a respectful manner. And of course, all covered at all times. And you see the way that they needed to be prepared in the field. Not all of them would arrive exactly fully covered and so instantly all the people who know that lachot and who, who really feel that the respect, this last respect for these bodies is the most important thing on their mind, cover them up instantly, what part needs to be uncovered, okay we'll do that quickly, we'll look at the part that needs to be identified and we'll cover it back up we're going to place it down with such care really the thing that was so moving to me is if a body drops Practically speaking, you think of all the logistics of the army, nothing happens. Yet all the people dealing with the bodies were so careful, you could tell in their mind a body falling, slipping, or being turned over into the incorrect position was worse in everyone's mind than a Sefer Torah falling on the floor. And that's really the only thing I can compare it to. And really, that was just something beautiful that I witnessed. And obviously there are much darker and more gruesome things that can be discussed. Different things that I saw, dealt with, that made me think other things. But that is just one thing that I think is very important to share. And one more similar, similar thing to share is just the fact that it's not a given that 
the type of care that's being given to all these bodies, meaning many different countries, if they ever experience a mass death like this, be it an attack or of natural occurrence, an earthquake, anything that happens, some countries end up doing mass graves. But certainly many countries... I don't know all the specifics, but from what I was told, the majority of, of countries in the world would not take the time to make sure they're identifying everybody. Now, in Jewish, in, 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 in halakha, not just everybody needs to be buried, but every part of the body, even if they're not all in one piece, anything that comes off of the body post-mortem is also buried. Any blood. So... Everyone is so careful with every piece of it. And with the identification process, many people will say, okay, somebody's can't identify it. We're not going to spend days and days and days trying to identify it. Whereas we are, we have entire units just, just devoted to doing whatever we can to identify every single last body, no matter what is left for us. At a certain point, it became impossible to do to have people personally identify the bodies. It was too difficult. We would even end up with people misidentifying based on the state that the bodies were in. But it got to the point with some of the victims based on what was left or the state that they were in that the only way is by DNA. Sometimes DNA didn't work if there wasn't really anyone available to give a sample because because the entire family was killed or because there wasn't really much left to extract DNA from. I know we have people coming in, <clears throat> especially experts into the country in order to help identify particularly challenging ones based on dental records and whatever it is left to us. And just the fact that this is so important to us and to the army and that the army operates based on these halachot was just really moving and it shows how much we care and it really was an experience that I'll never forget there's a much more more personal things and less positive things that can be discussed as well but I think for now this is just one positive thought that I think can be taken to heart even in the worst of times to see how we as a nation get together and deal with our brothers and sisters even in the most unfathomable circumstances I know this episode has been intense I know this episode is not what we would have expected the third episode of anything but traditional it'll look like. But untraditional times call for an untraditional way to begin a podcast. I thank you for listening to these stories, for hearing their messages, for giving them their respect, for hearing a glimpse of what they're going through. Thank you for listening.